chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to start reading at verse 4, and I'm going to read through chapter 2, verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Heavenly Father, turn our eyes, our minds, all of our attention on Your Word and speak. Please, Lord, speak to our hearts and show us about the superiority of our Savior Jesus, that there is nothing on earth or in heaven that compares to Him. Angels do not compare to Him. Teach us and show us that we should not neglect such a great salvation that He has spoken to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to assume that most of you have worked in a job somewhere, or you've had a supervisor of some sort, meaning somebody who wasn't the owner, somebody that you answered to that was not the owner of the business. And if you're a student, think the teacher, not the principal of the school. Whatever the environment, you have listened to and obeyed the authority of somebody who is not at the top of the ladder. And if you didn't listen to and obey that person, what happened to you? You reap the consequences, did you not? So it would be assumed, if you obeyed the supervisor, or if you obeyed the teacher, of course you would obey the owner or the principal, would you not? It would be a bit silly to think that a person who would obey the shift supervisor when the owner walks into the room, you tell him to get lost. That wouldn't happen, would it? Or at least it wouldn't make sense for that to happen. 
And so it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you willingly obey the lesser authority, it stands to reason that you will obey the greater authority. That's what's being taught here early on in Hebrews. When the author introduces angels and his argument. In the second half of chapter 1, it's pretty clear that there is some sort of comparison being made between angels and the Son of God. In verse 4, we're told that Jesus, though the name of Jesus isn't specifically stated, we know that's who he's talking about, we're told that he has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so why is it, right here at the very beginning of this letter, that this is the comparison that's being made? Why did he choose to use angels to compare to the Son of God? Could it be that there are some people there in the first century culture that have decided to worship angels or maybe give them a lofty position, maybe too high above what they should? I've heard something like that as a possibility before, but that is not the concern that's being addressed here in this letter. If you'll look back at verses 1 and 2, you'll see that we will be reminded of the direction that this author wants to take us. He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So he says, back then, under the old covenant, lots of different ways and lots of different times, God chose to speak to His people. All sorts of ways He did that. But in these last days, he has come finally to speak to us by his son. And so one of the ways that God spoke to the Hebrew fathers long ago was by angels. He chose to use angels to speak to God's people. Can you remember any specific places where angels spoke on behalf of God in the Old Testament? Can you think of some in your mind? Remember the prophet Daniel, he has a lengthy encounter with the angel Gabriel. He told him of things that would take place. Angels appeared to Abraham and to Jacob. Remember, Jacob wrestled with an angel. Angels appeared to Gideon and the parents of Samson. And there are others. Plenty of places where angels appeared and many times spoke for the Lord. And each of these times was important at the time the angel visited, but I don't think any of them were so important that the author chose to insert angels here in this place as the first argument he's going to make. Now, there was an instance of angels speaking on behalf of God that was far more important than any of those that I've just mentioned. In fact, it was arguably the most important message ever given in the Old Testament, but it's rarely connected in our minds being given by angels. Do you know what it was? It was the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now you might say, hold on, Hold on, the Ten Commandments were given by God Himself from Mount Sinai, were they not? And certainly the Bible affirms that God spoke to His people from the mountain. And if you remember the story, they were terrified at what they heard. There was lightning, fire from the sky. I mean, it was a terrifying sight. 
But that doesn't tell the whole story because it seems that what was happening is that there were angels that God used to deliver that message. They were God's ambassadors up there on that great mountain giving the law to His people. And there are four places in the New Testament that make that clear. I want to give them to you, just in case there are some concerns or doubts in your mind. The first two of these are in the speech of Stephen just before he is martyred. He gives a sermon, if you remember that. He gives a, a brief retelling of the entire Old Testament. How the people of God have always refused to listen to the word of the Lord when it came to them. And twice he says that the law was delivered by angels who spoke for God. The first one he's talking about Moses here. Stephen says, this is the one, Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. And so Stephen says that when Moses was up there receiving instruction from the Lord, the angel was there with him giving him living oracles. And then right before he was killed, Stephen was about to be stoned, and he told them, you never listen. God's people have never listened when the word came to them. They always rejected what he said, and they killed the prophets. And he himself was about to follow in their line. And he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And so the main thing that Stephen is teaching here in this speech is that just what I just said, that the Old Testament fathers have always resisted the Holy Spirit and rejected and killed those people who came to deliver God's Word. He's not teaching them specifically about angels here. That's not his main concern. And so the fact that the angels delivered the law is a kind of aside for him. It's not the main point. And it, but it would not have shocked these people in the first century to have heard that from his lips. It was already understood to be the case in the first century that the angels had performed this monumental task on behalf of God. In fact, Paul teaches this same thing in Galatians 3. He's explaining the reason why the law was given to God's people. He says there in Galatians 3.19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it, talking about the law, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now the law is more than just the Ten Commandments, but it certainly includes those Ten Commandments, does it not? And Paul is telling them that angels served as the vessels by which God spoke to the people. That does not mean that God was not in any way present on Mount Sinai in the fire or in the lightning and the thunder. Of course He was. The Scriptures affirm that. It's just that angels were somehow the carriers of His words. Now back to Hebrews. 
because that's the last place where this truth about angels is affirmed. It's here in this section that we're in, the beginning of chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Look at what he says there. For since the message declared by angels, and again he's talking about the law, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience to it received a just retribution. He's saying that the law, when it was given, everyone who received that law, delivered by angels, listened to what it said. It proved itself to be reliable. It proved itself to be from God himself. And what happened to the people when they disobeyed that word? They received a just retribution. They were punished. They were punished when they did not obey the word that had come through those angels. So what's the case that's being made here? He's telling these people, you obeyed the message that was given by angels. You obeyed that. You listened. And anybody who disobeyed that message, they received a right punishment from God. What then will happen to you if you disobey the word that comes from his son? So for over a thousand years, the Hebrew people had studied every word that came to them in the law. They broke it all down into 600 and some odd commands that were given. Like they studiously looked at this, studied it, obeyed it, even set up more rules and regulations to ensure they did not break it. And this writer here is saying, that message was given by angels from God, and you listen to that like that? Should you not much more than listen to his son? That's his argument. And so can you see now why he has angels at the very beginning of his argument in this letter? Because angels delivered the most important message ever given in the Old Testament. And he wants to remind this people, you must then listen to God's Son. And all these Old Testament quotations that I read here in chapter 1, they are given to show that the angels, whose message they've obeyed for so long, that they don't measure up in stature. They are nothing compared to the Son of God and the word that he has given in these final days. So in verse 5 we see, Has God ever said to any angel, You're my son, and I'm your father? And we're supposed to know just intuitively, if we know the scriptures at all, that no, he's not ever said anything like that to the angels. He's not called them his sons, and he's never said that he's their father. At least not in the way that he talks about Jesus. Verse 6, we read that Jesus is the firstborn. He's the firstborn. Not the first created thing, but just as any firstborn son in a traditional father's house, that son receives honor and he receives priority. So he is teaching us that in God the Father's house, so does his son. 
receive honor and priority. And to demonstrate that, all the angels are commanded to worship Him, not the other way around. So who worships who? The lesser always worships the greater, right? But the angels are commanded to worship God's Son. Shouldn't that make it clear who is greater in the Father's house? Verse 7, the angels do have their place, we're told, in the created order. Their purpose is given to them by God. It says that He makes them winds and a flame of fire. They go and they do whatever they are told as created beings do. But the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He is the eternal God. He is not a created being, as the next verse says. It says, You, Lord, talking about the Son, laid the foundation at the beginning. That was the work of your hands. You are the creator. Everything else, he says, will perish and wear out. Other beings in the created order, they are all subject to change, like the angels whom God makes winds and flames. Everything else is subject to change, but not the Son. He is always the same, and His years have no end. That's what we see in verse 12. And finally, of the Son, there in verse 13, we see that He has the place of honor. Where is His place now in the presence of God? Right at His right hand, the place of rule and authority. He is not standing in the back of the room somewhere. Standing room only in heaven, and there's Jesus right there in the very back. No place for Him. No place for Him to sit. No. Where is He? Right at God's right hand. God has given no such place like that to the angels. Now, no doubt they do have a purpose that is a grand one, spectacular. They are not despised and lowly. We're told that they are ministering spirits sent out by God to serve for the sake of those who are going to inherit salvation. That's what their job is. They serve humanity. They serve us at work, helping us to get to heaven. And I don't know about you, but that causes all sorts of thoughts to start bouncing around inside my head. What specifically does this look like on a day-to-day -day basis? What do the angels do each and every day? How much of the good that comes into my life has been brought about by God through the ministry of some angel? I don't often think like that, but this verse forces me to. So when we go out to speak the gospel in the neighborhood on Thursday nights, what role do angels play in that? Where are they in that? What battles are being fought that I cannot see? What are they doing right now? as we gather to worship God? Do they fend off the enemy who's causing doubts and unbelief and sleepiness? It reminds me of the scene in the life of Elisha. Maybe you remember it. An army came and surrounded the house that he was in. 
giant army, foreign, ready to invade, attack. And he has his servant there with him. The servant is panicking just like you and I would, I'm sure, if we woke up one morning and looked out our window and a foreign army was standing out there on the road. Would you not be afraid? I think I would too. But Elisha prays to the Lord and he says, O Lord, open his eyes that he might see. Like really see. And when he looks out, what does he see? He sees the armies of God out there ready to battle on their behalf. Talking about the angels. Now, the regular eyes couldn't see it. But once God gave him sight, he could. They were out there fighting on behalf of God's people. So we're told here that they really are great in stature, but they are not the Son of God. They have their place, but they do not have His place. And that brings us back to the writer's main point. If you listened to these servants of God, if you listen to the angels, and I would imagine, okay, that if an angel showed up right now in this room and began to speak saying that he had come on behalf of God, what do you think we would do? I think we would pay attention, would we not? I think we would listen. We would not ignore him. I don't think you'd continue to listen to me, all right? Right here on the stage, angel shows up. You're listening to his voice. And so he's saying that if that is the case, that you know that he has come to speak on behalf of God, how much more so when the Son shows up and speaks of salvation? The angels declared the law of God. Everybody listen to that. And anybody who disobeyed what was said received the required punishment under the old covenant. They got what was coming to them for disobeying God's word. What will happen, he is saying, to those who disobey the greater word that the Son of God has said when he came to establish the new covenant that replaces the old one? The old one was disappearing and fading away. The new one was here. And the Son came to speak of that one. And so he is delivering here in this message, this sermon that he's written to whatever church it came to, he's delivering what this ancient people needed to hear. And what was that? It was a warning. It's a warning. Have you ever needed a warning before? Have you ever needed to be told that danger was ahead? Well, this author can clearly see that danger is coming up for these people. And they need to listen or something terrible is going to happen. They were being tempted to neglect this final word of salvation that was given by the Lord Jesus himself. The cultural winds were getting stronger against them. It wasn't comfortable to be a Christian anymore. The laws of the land were not in their favor. They're beginning to have their property taken from them. We'll see that in chapter 10. Their stuff's getting taken from them because of who they are. People are being hauled away to jail, and guess what? Their hearts are getting weak. 
Their hearts are starting to wander. They're starting to think to themselves, it would just be better for me to go back to the life that I had before. Things were easy for me back then before I came to Jesus. I thought everything was supposed to get better. Have you ever thought that before? I thought when Jesus came into my life that all the paths are going to be smooth. I'm always going to have an abundance like I thought I was. He said you're going to have an abundant life. But things aren't looking very abundant right now. In fact, I'm struggling. Maybe I should just go back to what I was before. And life would just get a little easier. And so he knows that about these people. He's heard. He's probably seen. He knows what that looks like. And so they needed a warning. We're going to see that again and again throughout this book, that warning signs are posted along the way in Hebrews. You get a couple of chapters down the, down the road, what happens? Warning, turn back, danger is ahead. And we know something about that as we drive along the roads, do we not? We know that some signs are more important than others. You might not care that much about the speed limit signs, and maybe you disregard them. You don't give them a thought as you're trucking along. But I'm sure that you will pay attention to the signs that tell you that danger is ahead. What about a sign that says, bridge out ahead? Pay attention to that one. If you keep going that way without paying attention, you are going to meet disaster. You know that. Turn back or else. And that's what happens throughout this book. He says, warning, bridge out ahead. It's what these people needed. And I have to imagine that in this room, there are many here who might need that same warning as well. I think we can all benefit, can we not, from a divinely inspired warning. Or do you just always think everything's just okay no matter what you do? No matter what you think, no matter what you believe, no matter how you live, the Word of God says differently. God knows that we like to toy with danger. We like to get just as close as we possibly can, don't we? And the way that we often are, we like to get just as close to the edge of danger and sin or whatever it is as we can. We're not very good listeners. We're like children who are drawn to stick their fingers in wall sockets. Or a child who says, don't touch the stove, it's really hot, and they just kind of want to get their hand real close to it. Are you sure? I don't know if I believe that. Let me just touch it. Well, we're like that too. And we're being told that the Son of God has come to declare to you a great salvation and that what He has said is the weightiest word that has ever been spoken on earth, and it deserves our full attention. Heaven and hell are at stake in what he says. Salvation and the judgment of God hinge upon his word. Peace for eternity and eternal torment are there. He says there is blood offered for forgiveness. Forgiveness from who? What do I need forgiveness from? I'm all right. You're all right. Forgiveness from who? From your Creator. So don't reject it. 
Don't count it as nothing. Do not trample upon his blood. So you've heard that these last three weeks we've gone out in the neighborhood on Thursday nights to have conversations with people out there door to door about these realities. And there is nothing more important that they could hear. And for the most part, what we have seen is that people do not have ears to hear it. They don't have the time they don't have the desire to listen, even for a minute, even when we say that. Just give me a minute of your time. No, 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 no. I don't think so. They mostly take us for hucksters, cheap peddlers of snake oil, like all the others or many of the others who come knocking on their door. But for all of our deficiencies, and those are there, all of our weaknesses, those are there. We come back and we talk about how, you know, concerned we are, nervous we are. I even one night used the word terrified at the thoughts of that. For all of our deficiencies and weaknesses, we bring to them the words of life from King Jesus. Now, we don't look like much. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. God has chosen it to be this way, these cheap earthen pots that we live in. He has put a treasure inside of us to speak to others and to live out. We have within us the final word that he came to speak into this sin-soaked world that life and peace are in him. Twice in the short walk that my wife and I made talking to people this past Thursday, we heard that the way to heaven for them was just to be good. Just be good. What does that even mean? In comparison to who? Who gets to say what good is? Or how good good enough is? Well, we know that there's only one who's good. And his name is Jesus. And he is the only one who has come and been good enough, good enough to enter the gates of heaven. So what do we need? Where is life and where is peace? It's faith in the good one who came to live the perfect life that I cannot live. And brothers and sisters, you cannot either. Only perfection. Think about this. Good you know, does that mean 51% to 49%? And God says, good enough, brother, come on in. Absolutely not. What is good enough for heaven? Perfection. Not even 99% as if there's anybody that could even do that. So how is it that I can have life? What is the word of salvation that Jesus has come to bring? It is that perfection and life and hope are found completely in him and by faith in the perfect one. Only by faith as we trust in him can we be joined to Jesus and all that he has done on our behalf. So I don't trust in my own goodness. What is that? That is death. 
The word that the angels came to speak was, do this and you shall live. Measure up to the law. But what's the law that they spoke of? It was a magnifying glass that only demonstrated that those people were not good enough and that they needed a sacrifice. And not the sacrifice of an animal. They needed the perfect sacrifice of the Son of God. That is the word of life that we need. That is the word that he tells us here that you must not neglect. Don't turn a blind eye to this. Don't make your heart callous to this. When we see the law, we look at that and we compare ourselves to what we see there. What do we say? The response should not be that I'm better than most. We look at the law and we say, woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That's what I should be saying about myself when I see the law. But when I see the Son, what does he say? He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Man, that's good news. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. We often think of God being hard and difficult, do we not? Sometimes I default that way. Oh, God, he deals hard with us. But when we look at Jesus, what does he say? He says that I am gentle and lowly in heart, and in him you will find rest for your soul. And that's a good word. So do you want the word of angels that they spoke? Really a word of condemnation for sinners? Or do you want the word of the Son who comes and offers rest for you? Are you going to ignore all that he says just to give ear to the dying world words? We open up our ears for so much. Political jockeying, dire economic predictions, they're there every day, are they not? Tons of entertainment news, lots of sports talk, and people's hopes go up and down based on what they hear out there in the world. And I'm not saying there's never a place to listen to some of those things. But you are sensible people, and you know what rules your heart. Whose word are you listening to and obeying? Who is it? Do you live for what the dying world lives for, or do you die to the world to obey your master, Jesus Christ? Which is? That's the warning that he's given here. Examine yourself. What are you living for? You're obeying somebody's voice. Is it King Jesus? Because he's spoken the best word that has ever been given. Are you listening? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for a word of warning that we are not to neglect such a weighty 
word that has come through our Savior. A word that offers us rest and peace found completely in Him and what He has done. Not a word to just strive to be better. It's some bar, something that we should, some level of goodness that we seek to attain on our own. That is a word of death. There is no hope in that. Our hope, we confess as a church, is in Jesus Christ. Turn every heart in this room this morning to Him. That we would rejoice that there is life and salvation and eternity in the presence of our God in Him. Lord, please do it. Open up our eyes and open up our ears to rejoice in Jesus Christ. We ask it all in His perfect 